And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, it is February 19th, 50th day of the year. 315 days remain to the year's over with, and we'll get to do it all over again. Holidays and observances. National Hickey Day. Run out and get one today. <clears throat> International Tug of War Day. National Family Day. National Chocolate Mint Day. President's Day. Constantin Brancusi Day. Savaji Jayanti Day. Cancer Prevention Action Week, Real Bread Week, Future Farmers of America Week, National Engineers Week, National Nest Box Week, and National Condom Week. Put some in your wallet today. And uh, it's Benicio Del Toro's birthday, National Black History Month, Canned Food Month, National Snack Food Month, National Children's Dental Health Month, Harley Quinn Month. National Embroidery Month, National Grapefruit Month, National Women Inventors Month, Great American Pie Month, International Vegan Cuisine Month, American Heart Month, National Cherry Month, National Bake for Family Fun Month, National Bird Feeding Month, National Heart Breakfast Month, National Library Lovers Month, Low Vision Awareness Month, National Fasting February, and North American Inclusion Month. I think we got enough inclusivity. 197 AD, Emperor Septimus Severus defeats usurper Claudius Albinus in the Battle of Lugdunum, the bloodiest battle between Roman armies. 356 AD, the anti-paganism policy of Constantius II forbids the worship of pagan idols in the Roman Empire. 1594. Having already been elected to the throne of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in 1587, Sigismund III, the House of Vasa, was crowned King of Sweden, succeeded his father, John III of Sweden, in 1592. In 1600, the Peruvian Stratovolcano, Hunapotina, explodes in the most violent eruption in the recorded history of South America. <coughs> 1649, Second Battle of Guararapes takes place, effectively ending Dutch colonization efforts in Brazil. 1674, England and the Netherlands signed the Treaty of Westminster, ending the Third Anglo-Dutch War. Provision of the agreement transfers the Dutch colony New Amsterdam to, New, to England, and New Amsterdam eventually became New York City. 1714, Great Northern War. The Battle of Napu between Sweden and Russia is fought in Isakrio Ostrobothnia. 1726, the Supreme Privy Council was established in Russia. 1807, former Vice President of the U.S. Aaron Burr is arrested for treason in Wakefield, Alabama, confined to Fort Stoddard. 1819, British explorer William Smith discovers the South Shetland Islands and claims them in the name of King George III. 1836, King William IV signs letters patent establishing the province of 
South Australia. 1846, in Austin, Texas, the newly formed Texas state government is officially installed. Republic of Texas government officially transfers power to the state of Texas government following the annexation of Texas by the U.S. 1847, first group of rescuers to reach the Donner Party. 1859, Don Sickles, oh, excuse me, Daniel Sickles, New York congressman, is acquitted of murder on grounds of temporary insanity. And he was sitting in Congress. 1878, Thomas Edison patents the phonograph. 1884, more than 60 tornadoes strike the southern U.S., one of the largest tornado outbreaks in U.S. history. 1913, Pedro Mascarene becomes president of Mexico for 45 minutes. Shortest term to date of any person as president of any country. <coughs> the... Um, He was the grandson of Mariano Parades, the 15th president of Mexico, previously served as Mexico's foreign secretary for two terms and was director of a small law school in Mexico City for 16 years. The uh, night, February 19, 1913, General Victoriano Huerta overthrew Mexico. Mascarene was one of the people convinced Madero to resign the presidency while he's being held prisoner in the National Palace and Claimed his life was in danger if he refused. Under the 1857 Constitution of Mexico, the Vice President, the Attorney General, the Foreign Secretary, and the Interior Secretary stood in line to the presidency. Well, as well as Madero, Huerta had ousted Vice President Jose Maria Pino Suarez and Attorney General Adolfo Valles Baca to give the coup some appearance of legality. Adler Screen assumed the presidency. It would then appoint him as Interior Secretary, making Huerta next in line to the presidency. And then under the agreement, um, he was going to resign. So the presidency passed to Huerta. As a consequence, Les Corain was president for less than an hour. Um, there have been different figures uh, quoted in history from 15 to 56 minutes. But whatever it was, his presidency was the shortest in history. Huerta called a late-night special session of Congress, and under the guns of his troops, the legislatures endorsed his assumption of power. A few days later, Huerta had Madero and Pino Suarez killed. The coup and the events surrounding it became known as the Ten Tragic Days. All righty. 1915, World War I. First naval attack on the Dardanelles began with a strong Anglo-French task force bombarded uh, of the Ottoman artillery along the coast of Gallipoli. Uh, 1937, Yucatec 12, during a public ceremony at the Viceregal Palace, the former imperial residence in uh, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, two Ethiopian nationalists of Eritrean origin attempt to kill Viceroy Rodolfo Graziani with a number of grenades. Didn't quite make it. 1942, World War II. Nearly 250 Japanese warplanes attacked the northern Australian city of Darwin. Killed 243 people. Um, 1942, World War II. President Franklin D. Roosevelt signs Executive Order 9066, allowing the U.S. military to relocate Japanese Americans to internment camps. 1943, World War II, Battle of Kazarine Pass in Tunisia begins. 
1945, World War II, Battle of Iwo Jima. 30,000 U.S. Marines land on the island of Iwo Jima. Uh, 1948, Conference of Youth and Students of Southeast Asia Fighting for Freedom and Independence convenes in Calcutta. Don't you just love these convoluted names? All righty. 1949, Ezra Pounds awarded the first Bollingen Prize in Poetry by the Bollingen Foundation and Yale University. 1953, book censorship in the U.S. The Georgia Literature Commission is established. Leave it to Georgia to try to control everything everybody thinks or does. 1954, transfer of Crimea. The Soviet Union orders a transfer of the Crimean Oblast from the Russian SFSR to the Ukrainian SSR. 1959, UK grants Cyprus independence, which is formally proclaimed August 16th, 1960. On this date, 1960, the China successfully launches the T-7, its first sounding rocket. 1963, publication of Betty Friedan's uh, The Feminine Mystique reawakens the feminist movement in the U.S. as women's organization and consciousness-raising groups spread. Now, if you have to go to a consciousness-raising group, uh, I don't know what to say about you. 1965, Colonel Pham Nok Tao, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam and a communist spy for North Vietnamese Viet Minh, along with Generals Lam Van Phat and Tran Trien Kim, all Catholics, attempt a coup against the military junta of the Buddhist Nguyen Khan. 1976, Executive Order 9066, it led to the relocation of Japanese Americans to internment camps, is rescinded by President Gerald if it's there, I'll trip over it forwards. Proclamation 4417. 1978, Egyptian forces raid Arnaka International Airport and attempt to intervene in a hijacking without authorization from the Republic of Cyprus authorities. Cypriot National Guard and the police forces kill 15 Egyptian commandos and destroy the Egyptian C-130 transport plane in open combat. No uh, report on what happened to the hijacker. 1985, William Schroeder becomes the first recipient of an artificial heart to leave the hospital. 1985, a Boeing 727 operating as Iberia Flight 610 crashes uh, in the Mount Oiz in Spain, killing 148. It's the deadliest accident to occur in Iberia's history and the deadliest in Basque County to occur. 1986, a Karyapatu massacre. Syrian Lankan army massacres 80 Tamil farm workers in eastern Sri Lanka. 1989, flying Tiger Line flight 56, excuse me, 66, crashes into a hill near Sultan Abdul Aziz Shah Airport in Malaysia, killed four people. 2002, NASA's Mars Odyssey space probe begins a, to map the surface of Mars using its thermal emission imaging system. <clears throat> 2003, an Aleutian 276 military aircraft crashes near Kermam in Iran, killed 275 people. 2006, methane explosion in a coal mine near Nueva Rosita, Mexico, kills 65 miners. 2011, the debut exhibition of the Belatung shipwreck containing the largest collection of Tang Dynasty artifacts found in one location.
begins in Singapore. 2012, 44 people are killed in a prison brawl in Apodaca, Nuevo Leon, Mexico. And in 2021, Maya Tway Tway Klein, a 19-year-old protest, remember the first known casualty of an anti-coup protest that formed in response to the 2021 Myanmar coup d'etat. Uh, I tell you, everybody wants to be an activist. Everybody wants to protest to get their name known as you're somebody who fights for freedom. Nine times out of ten, it's stupid. It's like the suicide bombers. What do they prove other than that they can be blown up? Well, all that having been said now, uh, there was a couple of news items I wanted to cover. The uh, you know the most latest um, decision against former President Trump by an anti-Trump judge has even has the left MSNBC host questioning the merits of that decision. The um, Sylvester Stallone. Rocky, hired Navy SEALs to train his daughters before they moved to New York City. Well, with all the attention being paid to security, especially with airlines, at, um, let's see what airport that was, from Tennessee to California, Woman walked past the checkpoint, didn't have a ticket, didn't have, um, wasn't screened, got on the plane, nobody said anything. It's just unbelievable. Well, the, um, the, uh, parade and celebration, uh, celebrating the um, Kansas City Chiefs um, victory. People started shooting. What is the purpose of all that? Uh, two juveniles were arrested. They'll be, their lives are ruined. They'll be tried for murder. I mean, we got some truly idiotic people running around. It just absolutely baffles me. All right. We've been talking about ghost towns and haunted houses and things like that. We're going to be talking about some more of them today. You know, it's, it's strange to think that what you do for good or bad can um, resonate in your um, in your home well another place that's got quite a reputation Alcatraz San Francisco um I mean, there's a lot of folks that say the ghost of Al Capone 
still hangs around Alcatraz. The uh, he spent a lot of downtime practicing the banjo in the shower room and played in a prison band called the Rock Islanders. And many visitors today claim to hear somebody playing a banjo in that very same place. The uh, Capone was an odd individual to begin with. You know, the um, you know for thousands of years before it became home to America's most infamous maximum security prison, Alcatraz was a nesting place for seabirds. 1775, Spanish explorer Juan Manuel de Ayala first mapped San Francisco Bay, christened the barren spit of rock as the Island de los Alcatraces, which means the Island of the Pelicans. California became a state in 1850. President Millard Fillmore issued an executive order setting aside Alcatraz for military use. The Army first built a fortress on the bird-infested rock, but eventually began using the site for, as a detention facility. Federal Bureau of Prisons assumed control of that 22-acre island in 1933. And over the next 29 years, U.S. Penitentiary Alcatraz gained infamy as the toughest jail in the country. It was remote, separated from the mainland by frigid, tide-ribbed waters, not to mention sharks. Uh, penitentiary officials claimed nobody ever successfully escaped, though five of the 36 men who attempted to do so were never found. Now, it was believed they drowned in the choppy waters, but there's never been any proof of that. And it was scary, occupied by some of the country's deadliest criminals. Most menacing and hard to control was sent to D-Block, which included several cells used for solitary confinement. And among Alcatraz's most well-known inmates was Chicago mobster Al Capone, who spent most of his prison sentence there. Fellow gangsters Mickey Cohen, George Machine Gun Kelly, Barnes, and Ellsworth Bumpy Johnson, the godfather of Harlem, also did a hard time on the rock. Robert Stroud, known why this is the birdman of Alcatraz, was a prisoner on the island for 17 years. He was sentenced to, life, to a life sentence for first-degree murder. Went to Alcatraz in 1942 from the federal penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. He had been incarcerated there since 1912. In Leavenworth, he became renowned for his study of ornithology and published a well-regarded book on the diseases of canaries. Prison officials, though, didn't care for the filthy conditions he created in, uh, with his collection of birds and shipped him to Alcatraz. Whereas a resident of D-Block, he would no longer be allowed to keep his birds. Well, Alcatraz ceased operation in 1963, hampered by expensive operational cost and structural decay. Opened as a tourist attraction in 1973, but retained its atmosphere of eerie menace. Ghost hunters claim D-Block is the most haunted place on the island. Cell 14D was used for solitary confinement, earned the nickname The Hole. Visitors to the cell report it's always cold, even in the summer. Crying and moaning have been heard in other cell blocks, and strange noises have been reported coming from the utility quarter, where three inmates were shot and killed during a failed escape attempt. There have been uh, a number of stories I've heard about Alcatraz. There's no doubt there's something very strange going on there. 
Well, let's talk about the the new Amsterdam Theater. You know, it said the ghost of Olive Thomas appears so frequently at the theater. Um, at Disney, which now runs the new Amsterdam, put pictures of her at every entrance so workers can greet her when they arrive in hopes of minimizing her mischief. You know, the death of Olive Thomas in 1920 was one of the first film star scandals. It came from the coal mining town of Sherroy, Pennsylvania, got in her show business, started as a teenager, modeling for artists in New York City. A few years later, the beautiful brunette joined Zigfield's Follies at the New Amsterdam Theater on 42nd Street. Soon graduated from the Follies to making films and made 19 movies between 1915 and 1920, taking the lead in several of them. 1918, she was touted as the first star of the new Selznick Pictures Company. Well, 19, by 1920, she was 25 years old and four years into a stormy marriage with Jack Pickford, the brother of America's sweetheart, Mary Pickford. Olive and Jack fought frequently, including on the night of September 5th when they were out partying in Paris. Well, when they got back to their hotel, she drank from a bottle of mercury bichloride, a topical solution Pickford was using to treat his chronic syphilis. Five days later, she's dead. Whether it was murder, suicide, or an accident, as stated in her autopsy, hardly, hardly mattered to the press, which had a field day with that story. Well, the ghost of Thomas has since been spotted soldering across the stage at the New Amsterdam, where she first rose to fame. She wears a green dress, a green beaded dress, that is, and carries a blue bottle. Who knows what's in the blue bottle? And in from... New York City, let's go St. Augustine, Florida. The St. Augustine Lighthouse. And one of the spirits believed to roam the grounds of the lighthouse is a former keeper named Joseph Andre, who died in 1859 when he fell from scaffolding while painting the tower. Since that time, the man in blue has been sighted several times at the lighthouse. Once he uh, chased a keeper up and down its 219 stairs. You know, the, the current lighthouse began operation in 1874, but there have been watchtowers and beacons on the site since not long after St. Augustine was founded by Spanish explorers in 1565. You know, the first American lighthouse was established on Anastasia Island in 1824 and built on top of a coquina tower the Spanish had erected 87 years earlier. The lamp was darkened during the Civil War, but was relit and put back into use in 1867. Not long after that, it became apparent that the structure was doomed to fall into the ocean. So construction on a new lighthouse started in 1871. It was during this project that tragedy struck. The supervisor of construction, Hezekiah Pitti, uh, lived on Anastasia Island with his wife Mary and their four children. Mary, Adelaide, Eliza, Edward, and Carrie. Children used to play on the job site, riding a railway cart used for moving supplies from the beach to the new tower. On July 10, 1873, Mary, who was 15, Eliza, 13, Carrie, who was 4, along with an unknown African-American girl, were riding the cart to the shore when it flipped into the water and trapped them all underneath it. By the time the rescuers got there, only Carrie, who was 4 years old, was alive. Well, since that accident... Lighthouse keepers, lamplighters, and visitors reported hearing children playing and 
girls giggling in and around the tower. And a number of apparitions of young girls dressed in Victorian-era clothing have also been seen uh, reading on park benches. It's nice that these particular ghosts are continuing their education. Of course, it's been said that ghosts haunt whether they were the happiest or the unhappiest. Certainly, living in uh, St. Augustine would have been a happy place. Well, everybody loves monsters. You know, tales of these terrifying creatures, uh, whether passed down in folk tales and legends or dreamed up for the silver screen, or actually the stuff of nightmares. And first and foremost, we've got aliens. You know, in all its forms, from egg to face hugger to chest burster to xenomorph, the antagonist from Ridley Scott's classic 1979 film Alien and its two sequels might be the most terrifying monster in movie history. It's never anything but a smothering, slimy, savage killing machine. I'm sure it has social redeeming points, but I've never found what they were. Then, of course, we have Bigfoot. Part of Native American lore. And it's been part of Native American lore for centuries. Bigfoot, also known as Sasquatch, became a sensation in 1958 when a small California newspaper reported the discovery of massive footprints in the Six Rivers National Forest. And there have been thousands of sightings since that time, none more famous than the 1967 film of a hairy creature walking on two legs. I think it was filmed by a man named Roger Patterson. You know, skeptics have tried to prove it's been a hoax, but they've not been successful. Then we have Count Orlock, based on Bram Stoker's Dracula. Orlock, the vampire antagonist and German director F.W. Murnau's 1922 uh, classic Nosferatu, provides none of the shocking or bloody scares that modern horror connoisseurs expect. But his demonic, cadaverous form, especially in rising stiff body from his coffin, uh, continues to haunt viewers. Then we have the Death Angels, the gruesome and seemingly invulnerable aliens from the 2018 film A Quiet Place and its 2020 sequel. Both starring Emily Blunt as a determined mother are totally blind, hunting their play by sound. They do have super hearing, and they wipe out the human race, not for food, but to eliminate the noise that drives them into a murderous rage. And there are days when I can sympathize with them. Then we've got Demogorgon, the humanoid monster from the first season of Netflix's Stranger Things. And it's terrifying, uh, tall and thin with slimy skin and elongated limbs that end in sharp claws. But the real nightmare fuel is the monster's featureless head that opens like a flower to reveal a gaping mouth and petals covered in teeth. Then we got Pennywise, uh, if you got a phobia of clowns, and that is a real thing, uh, the clinical term is chorophobia, and few characters in film history explored it in more terrifying fashion than Pennywise, the sadistic clown from Stephen King's best-selling horror novel, It. This sewer-dwelling, shape-shifting villain preys on the children of Derry, Maine, feeding on their worst fears. Certainly, 
there's been a number of um, instances of uh, clown assault in a number of TV shows. Then we got Godzilla, of course, a monster that spoke to man's fear of a terrifying new age. Godzilla first appeared in 1954 Japanese film Gohira, about an ancient sea creature awakened by underwater hydrogen bomb testing. The movie's real terror was existential. Man had created the bomb and nature was taking its revenge. And certainly that is a possibility. Then we have John Carpenter's The Thing. Because the otherworldly title, monster from director Carpenter's 1982 masterpiece of suspense and paranormal that simulates every living being it encounters from fluffy dogs to unsuspecting people. There's no single terrifying image of this particular monster. There are many, and they're all gruesome, gross, gory, and utterly unforgettable. Certainly, it was uh, it's something to uh, contemplate. Then we got the Loch Ness Monster. You know, sightings of Scotland's famous cryptid, an animal never proven to exist, date back to 564 A.D. when a visiting Irish priest compelled Nessie to not attack. Now, why Nessie would pay attention to the mumblings of somebody dressed in a robe is anybody's guess, but... 2014, Apple Maps captured a viral image that supposedly shows a large creature swimming below the surface of Loch Ness, leading some to wonder if Nessie's actually real. And then we have the Wendigo, a creature from the folklore of the Native Americans of the Great Plains and Great Lakes regions. It's reputed to be an evil spirit, emaciated and forever ravenous, that possesses humans and turns them into bloodthirsty, cannibalistic monsters. In some mythologies, humans who become overpowered by greed can be transformed into Wendigos. And certainly I know some attorneys and contractors here who should be Wendigos, if that's the case. Well, from Unforgettable Monsters, let's turn to some unsolved mysteries. One of the first, of course, is uh, that we talked about before is Lizzie Borden, who gave her mother 40 wax and when she saw what she had done she gave her father 41 well let's talk about the watcher house in westfield new jersey you know the watcher's fourth and final letter to the bride's family included a prophetic statement you're despised by the house and the watcher won well nobody's heard from the letter writer for years and the whole episode is still a major mystery it all began when a two-story Dutch colonial at 657 Boulevard in New Jersey suburb of Westfield sold for $1.35 million in 2014, the buyers, Derek and Maria Broadus, thought they were getting their dream home. Built in 1905, the house had six bedrooms, four bathrooms, more than 3,800 square feet of floor space. They had three young kids, and the house was on a half-an-acre lot, one of the biggest lots in an an otherwise idyllic neighborhood. But they never moved in. In June of 2014, um, three days after closing, Derek was at the house painting when went outside to check the mail. In the box, he found a white envelope addressed to the new owners. Inside was a typed letter that welcomed Derek's family to the neighborhood and went on to say the writer had been watching the house for years and asked if the family knew about the forces inside its walls. The letter said, why are you here? Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force? Throw it in with a typed signature and a cursive font. The Watcher. Two more letters 
followed, each revealing specific details about the house and the Braddises, and each one threatening planes and cars and bicycles crash, one said. Bones break. Well, the police, to my utter amazement, showed up to do what might be termed a half-ass investigation. They found nothing. After the Baratuses learned the home's previous owners had got a letter from the watcher on the eve of the sale, they filed a lawsuit against them for failing to disclose it. Of course, one of the holier-than-thou judges dismissed the suit in 2017. 2019, the Baratuses finally sold the house for about 400000 less than they paid for it. Buyers were a couple from Westfield, suggesting the locals weren't that concerned about the, the mystery. The house had been owned by only a handful of people since 1905, and nobody had ever received similar, reported receiving similar letters. People were suspicious not of the watcher, but of the Baratuses. Yeah, the story, with its details of surveillance and its intimations about paranormal forces and its elements of menace, is frankly creepy and compelling. So creepy and so compelling that it was inspiration for a 2022 Netflix series. You don't know what your neighbors are up to. Well, let's go to Cranston, Rhode Island and talk about the Sprague Mansion. You know, legend also tells that the spirit of a former butler named Charlie reportedly haunts the mansion. He'd hoped his daughter would marry his employer's son who would have made his family rich. The wedding never took place. Now there are reports of Charlie wandering the hall, searching for his lost fortune. The estate was actually two conjoined structures built in 1790 and 1864, and it was the headquarters of the Sprague dynasty. 1908, the family founded the Sprague Printworks, one of the country's richest textile empires. Later generations branched out into other arenas, including finance, the military, and politics, William Sprague III was actually the governor of Rhode Island in the 1830s, and in the 1840s he became a senator. His brother Amasa, whose son uh, William Sprague IV also became governor of the state before being elected a U.S. senator, ran the family business. But on December 31, 1843, Amasa was murdered near the mansion, beaten to death while inspecting his farm. Suspicion, of course, settled on Nicholas Gordon, who owned a tavern frequented by the Irish workers in Sprague's Mill. Five months earlier, Sprague had been instrumental in the town denying Gordon, who was an Irish immigrant, a renewal of his liquor license. So the police, quick to do the bidding of the wealthy, arrested Nicholas, as well as his brothers, John and William, for the killing. The trial was marked by charges of anti-Irish bias, ending with John being hung on Valentine's Day in 1845. He was pardoned by Governor Lincoln Chaffee in 2011. Not that it did him a whole lot of good. Mansion first reported ghost encounter t- took place in uh, 1925 when guests came to see a spirit st- on the stairway. Moss's ghost is also said to haunt the wine cellar, pilling as a white filmy orb. Another account talks about a eerie happenings in the doll room, which glowing orbs were spotted, and the doll's eyes, which are actually painted on, uh, are seen to be moving. Now that would be creepy in the extreme. Well, from there, let's go to Cleveland, Ohio. What's known as Franklin Castle. You know, some visitors to the castle have heard phantom footsteps crossing the ballroom on the top floor. Other people report having heard voices. An apparition of Louisa Tatuman has been seen looking out the windows and 
room where she died in 1895 has been 10 to 15 degrees colder than the rest of the house. Well, the sandstone Queen Anne-style residence has some uh, distinctly Gothic accents, including turrets and gargoyles that uh, heighten its fortress-like look. 21-room house was built by German immigrant uh, Heinz Tiedemann, who had worked his way up from barrel maker's apprentice to wholesale grocer to bank president. When he and his wife, uh, Louisa, moved into the house in 1883 with their two surviving children, there'd been three others who died in infancy, and a fourth, Emma, 15, had succumbed to diabetes in January of 1881. Three months after Emma died, Tiedemann's mother passed away at the age of 84. Death gave rise to rumors that Hannes, who died in 1908, was a murderer who killed his niece and a servant girl. But a Cleveland Magazine interview in 2019 with William G. Crutchy, the castle's resident historian, author of the 2017 book uh, Haunted Franklin Castle, debunks the claim with Crutchy uh, saying the myth was concocted by a self-serving medium uh, who lived in the house in the 1980s. Today, the castle, also known as the Tiedemann House, is renowned as one of the most haunted places in the U.S. The ghosts believed to reside there are Louisa Tiedemann, who died in 1895, and daughter Emma, who died before the house was even built. I question whether she's actually haunting the house or maybe just haunting the land. Then, of course, we have the famed Lizzie Borden House in Fall River, Massachusetts. It now operates as a museum and bed and breakfast, and it's said to be haunted not only by the ghost of Andrew and Abby Borden, but also by the rest of the spirit of Lizzie. Her portrait hangs on a wall in the house. Well, on August 4th, 1892, this modest two-story Greek Revival-style home was the scene of a gruesome double murder. At about nine in the morning, 64-year-old Abby Borden was bludgeoned to death by a, with a hatchet in an upstairs bedroom. And about 90 years later, 90 years. 90 minutes later, 70-year-old businessman Andrew Borden, Abby's husband, was killed in a similar fashion while reclining on a lounge on the first floor sitting room. As far as anybody knew, the only other people home at the time of the killings were Lizzie Borden, Andrew's uh, 32-year-old daughter and Abby's stepdaughter, and a maid who had been sleeping in her room upstairs when she was awakened by Lizzie's chilling cries of alarm. Well, the police were almost immediately suspicious of Lizzie, who gave uh, muddled and contradictory statements to investigators about uh, her whereabouts when the killings took place. So, following the Keystone Cop method of investigation, first suspected is the first arrested. She was arrested and charged with murder on uh, August 11, 1892, and went to trial in June of 1893. The crime and the drama that played out in court made headlines across the U.S., and the case against Lizzie was largely circumstantial, and she was eventually acquitted. Lived the rest of her life in Fall River, though she was shunned by many in town who were positive she was guilty. The mystery of who killed Andrew and Abby Borden lives on today, as does the fascination with Lizzie. She and the case have inspired dozens of books, as well as movies, plays, and even a ballet. It'd be interesting to see people dancing across the stage wearing a tutu and carrying an axe. Well, there's a number of other haunted mystery stories. Many of these ghost stories are not only good for fright, but uh, also take the point of view there's a moral that can reveal what's truly haunting us. And of course, one of the most famous is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. 
1843 holiday classic is full of ghosts. There's actually four, including the shackled spirit of Jacob Marley, who teaches Ebenezer Scrooge, his former business partner, about the true meaning of Christmas. Scrooge resists to the ghost of Christmas yet to come, scares him straight. Then there's the story Beloved by Toni Morrison. It's set in post-bellum uh, Cincinnati. Ghost of a baby killed by her mother in order to save her from slavery is a malicious force in the, the mother's new home. And the haunting of the house in this 1987 novel becomes a metaphor for the way the sin of slavery continues to haunt the country. Well, that one, from my point of view, is high-sounding rhetoric. Then we got Ghost Story by Peter Straub. 1979, classic horror novel. Five elderly friends gather regularly to trade ghost stories. But one day, a member of the group dies under mysterious circumstances. When the other four begin to dream of their own deaths, there's a terrible secret from their past that's revealed. And in one that I enjoyed watching when I was quite young was uh, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. Investigate the rumored haunting of a mansion in this 1959 novel. Four people come together, a paranormal scholar, his female assistant, a shy woman, and her host, the heir of Hilt House. All are unnerved by the spooky events they experience and by how the house grows in power. Then we have uh, Mark Danielewski's House of Leaves, about a young family moving into a new home in this 2000 novel. Find something disturbing. The house is bigger on the inside than on the outside. I've heard that before. Doctor Who. The house is, um, contains an endless labyrinth. Much of the book is unconventional from the structure to the page layout. But in actuality, it's said that the uh, terror is real. And then, of course, one that I thought was completely off the rails was Stephen King's The Shining. Holed up in the snowed-in overlook hotel with his wife and his... Son Jack Torrance gets the worst case of writer's block in the history of literature and goes axe-wielding crazy. Ultimate case of the book being better. I mean, no more terrifying than the, the movie. The movie stars Jack Nicholson as the deranged Jack. Actuality, in all likelihood, he's deranged anyway. Then we got Macbeth by William Shakespeare. Banco's a friend in Marshall. A compatriot of the title character who aspires to become the King of Scotland. Also one of the of at least six people murdered by Macbeth in his crazed pursuit of the crown. Banco returns as a spirit covered in blood that only Macbeth can see. And in Henry James's Turn of the Screw, 1898 horror novel, a governess takes care of two orphans at a remote country estate. She gradually becomes to believe the grounds are haunted by the spirits of a man and a woman. And she also realized that children might be able to see the ghost. Then we've got a 2020 novel by Stephen Graham Jones called The Only Good Indians. It's about four young friends who go hunting and make some mistakes and upset the spirit in the process. Ten years later, the spirit returns for revenge, one friend at a time. The story depicts the struggle of Native Americans to reconcile the modern world with tribal traditions. And finally, we have Susan Hill's The Woman in Black. Solicitors separated from the outside world in a creepy mansion uh, when the waters rise over its causeway in this 1983 gothic horror movie. 
He's there to unravel the deadly history of the house and the affairs of its deceased owner until the woman in black comes to get him. And that certainly would be cause for uh, concern. Well, there's a lot of people who love to go explore abandoned places. I mean, there are those that say they're just drawn in by abandoned places. You know, objectively, an uninhabited house, building, or town sends out a pretty clear and often creepy signal it's probably best to stay away. I mean, after all, why would you want to explore something that's been abandoned? Nothing to see. But for reasons it's hard to explain, many people are attracted to such places. Could be curiosity, could be excitement, could be fear. But humans have a need to know what's going on. We need to snoop. We want to know the full story. I mean, let's think about grand historic structures like the Parthenon in Greece or the Colosseum in Rome. Now, these are classic tourist destinations, but they're also crumbling buildings from the distant past. And there is some beauty in what remains, and Real resonance in the power of such places transport any visitor like a time machine to another era, another way of life. I mean, we've often heard the expression, if walls could talk. But the truth is, ruins communicate something simply by the existing. I mean, how do places become abandoned in the first place? What were people like who inhabited them? Who built them? Why, some things, sometimes many things simply left behind? Well, usually our imagination makes up our own answers to these questions. The narratives we dream up can be so detailed and real that it can trick our senses to literally see ghosts. But with time and effort, it's, it's possible to separate reality from legend. For every abandoned place, there's a story waiting to be told and details to be discovered. So we're going to talk about a number of abandoned places in the United States. I mean, there's abandoned places around the world. We're going to talk about some here in the U.S. Let's talk about Remington Arms. You know, the end of the Civil War sparked a gun run in the U.S. Americans raced to arm themselves to defend against domestic enemies. Of course, once they got the guns, they needed ammunition. And that's how Bridgeport, Connecticut became the center of the munitions manufacturing world. 1867, a Union Metallic Cartridge Company built its factory there to produce an array of guns, bullets, and shotgun shells. The grounds included an iconic 10-story, 190-foot tower that looked like a whiskey bottle. It was the tallest building in the state at the time, also the centerpiece of a massive manufacturing plant. And after... Union Metallic Cartridge Company merged with Remington Arms in 1912. The Remington campus consisted of 38 buildings situated on 73 acres. It was the largest munitions factory in the world, supplying arms and ammo not only to the U.S., but also to Great Britain, France, and Russia. Outlasted the Great Depression, even survived a series of deadly accidents, including one in which 16 tons of gunpowder exploded. Caused damage all the way to Long Island, 21 miles away. Well, Remington eventually diversified production at the factory, moved on to making clothing and typewriters and household utensils in addition to the ammunition. But ammo remained number one. 
which is why it was such a blow to Bridgeport when the company moved its munitions manufacturing to a new plant in Lenoke, Arkansas in 1970. Emerson Iron's plant continued to churn out other products, but it was eventually closed for good in 1988. The complex was too massive to destroy or completely repurpose, so for years it sat empty, crumbling, an eyesore for the city of Bridgeport, ever-present symbol of economic decline and a place for urban explorers to go wandering around. Became a well-known haven for squatters and crime as well, leading to constant patrols of the abandoned grounds by the Bridgeport police. Finally, in uh, 1920, I'm sorry, in 2020, Bridgeport City Council approved a $5 million loan to begin demolishing the dilapidated, burned-out buildings on most of the property. But the famous shot tower will remain as a landmark after the city makes a nearly $3 million investment in restoring it. It's got a hell of a history, and it's a good-looking building, according to Thomas Gill, Bridgeport's Director of Economic Development. And it's something that should be preserved. And who knows what mysteries will be unearthed as the, the campus is uh, destroyed. Well, we got St. Elmore, Colorado. Like many towns in the American West, St. Elmore, Colorado was born during the gold rush and died when the dash for riches came to an end. Settled in 1878 after gold and silver was discovered and prospectors flocked to the area. The town was originally called Forest City. The U.S. Post Office objected because there were already too many towns with that name. One of the city founders, Griffin Evans, was reading the Augusta Jane Evans novel St. Elmo at the time, which was enough for to inspire an alternate name, which eventually stuck. It's in Chaffee County, Colorado. For years, St. Elmo thrived thanks to nearby gold, silver, copper, and iron mines. Grew quickly after the railroad came in 1881. Got even bigger when the Alpine Tunnel, once the highest railroad tunnel in North America, was built to... Uh, Connected uh, to towns on the western side of the Continental Divide. I mean, San Elmo was considered high class. It had restaurants and town halls and number of saloons. Downtown lit up on Saturday night with people ready to party. Well, at one point, San Elmo had a population of 2,000 people. But the beginning of the end came in 1890 when a fire destroyed the business section of downtown. It was never completely rebuilt. Between the fire and rapid depletion of the mines, residents began to move elsewhere. And after the Alpine Tunnel was closed in 1910, families that stayed started to leave as well. Well, trains continued to stop at San Elmo, but only until 1922. And when that ended, the town essentially ceased to exist. Now... Some folks tried to spark a revival. Roy and Tony Stark, descendants of one of St. Elmo's most elite and famous families, spent years searching for somebody to reopen the mines. And when they failed to find anybody, they became tourist brokers, leasing the empty buildings out to vacationing families, and they continued to operate the general store. By 1934, Tony and his sister Annabelle Stark were the only two residents left in St. Elmo. 
To visitors, Annabelle became known as Dirty Annie. I talked about her yesterday. I'm, yeah, on uh, Friday. Appearing disheveled and roaming the town in ragged clothes, carrying a rifle for protection of herself and the town. Two eventually ended up in mental health facilities shortly after the town's official death in 1952. That event was uh, occasioned by the closing of the post office. Remarkably, relatives of the Stark continue to live in the town for years afterwards. Annie's ghost is one that has uh, been seen as well, according to local legend. That she still patrols the streets of the, of the town. Today, St. Elmo stands as one of the most well-preserved ghost towns in the U.S. 2002, a fire destroyed several structures, including the town hall, but the general store, the church, the school, and many private cabins still remain. Relics were surrounded by hiking and horse and ATV trails, which are used by a constant stream of visitors to come to look at what's left of the boom times and to search for the ghost of Dirty Annie. And there's been legends about hidden gold. Well, we got time for one more story. I'm going to give you a little bit more information about Virginia City in Montana, the town that once boasted one of the richest gold strikes in the Rocky Mountains. And it was discovered at the height of the Civil War. A combination of sudden influx of money and animosity between North and South turned it into one of the most dangerous places in the country. I mean, if you wanted the Wild West, this is a place to go. I started in 1863 when prospectors Bill Fairweather and Henry Edgar discovered gold near Alder Gulch. They couldn't keep their discovery secret and eventually followed to the site by hundreds of other fortune seekers. And, unfortunately, Virginia City was deep in Union territory, but uh, a lot of these rivals uh, came from the South. And, of course, this particular dynamic gave rise to tension since the Civil War was raging at the time. Down to the Southern Heritage, new residents wanted to name the boomtown after Verena Howell Davis, the wife of Jefferson Davis and First Lady of the Confederacy. When they registered the name, a judge in Connecticut... Um, objected and with the I'm next to God attitude most judges had designated a new town's name as Virginia City well despite these issues the place did boom millions of dollars worth of gold was discovered and nearly 10,000 people settled in the area but since Virginia City is located in a remote section of the Idaho Territory, the town had no formal law enforcement or justice system. It was monitored by a miners' court. It led to a lot of crime and an alarming number of murders. The infamous uh, Montana vigilantes began policing the city and hanging captured criminals. Trial? We don't need no trial. We know he did it. Still, when the U.S. government officially incorporated the Montana Territory and 1864, Virginia City became the first capital. But by that point in time, the inevitable decline of the place had already begun. Gold was discovered at Last Chance Gulch in Helena. Many residents of Virginia City relocated there. By 1870, only a few hundred people still lived in the former boomtown. And in 1875, Helena was named the new capital of the territory. Even Henry Edgar knew Virginia City's demise was inevitable. That's why I began working with the Montana Historical Society to preserve what was left in 1899. 
Thanks to his efforts and the money of Charles and Sue Bovey, who bought and restored the town in the 1940s, Virginia City is considered a well-preserved ghost town. It's operated as an open-air museum with about 237 structures and signs placed all around town to tell visitors about the history. It became a National Historical Landmark in 1961. And as many... Strange stories told about Virginia City. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk about some more strange places. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.